How would God solve the Rubik's Cube? Have you ever pondered that question? The Rubik's Cube was created by a Hungarian inventor in 1974. I'm sure you've seen it. It's a six-sided cube, and it has different colors, and the goal is to try to get all the colors aligned on every face of the cube. There's a whole cottage industry around this this toy, right? You can get it in, in different shapes. You can get it in various sizes. There are tournaments that you can enter. The world record, I believe, is in 0.22 seconds, someone completed a Rubik's Cube. How would God solve this if he were given this toy? And what can we learn about racial reconciliation in God's image? In the first two sermons in this series on God's image, we learned that we are not simply bearing the image of God, but we are the image of God. It's part of our core identity. In Christ, this image is perfected. Because of this, he commands our lives. He commands our, our love because he has created us in this way. Last week, we learned that we are either a light-giving, life-giving image, or we are a darkness-spreading, life-taking agents of death. We are murderers. We are suicides. When we look around our present world, we see the various images of God fighting with one another. And that can be alarming to us. No matter what region of the world you see, we see conflict. And oftentimes, this conflict is drawn around ethnic or racial lines. For example, in in Asia, we see the, the Uyghur people, a minority group in China who are persecuted, not just because they are a minority in their ethnicity, but they are also Muslims. The various conflicts in the Middle East between the Arabic and Jewish peoples. We even see conflict between Arabic Palestinians and Arabic Egyptians. And here in America, the one that we all know too well, the lingering racial division rooting from slavery to Jim Crow, to present-day debates about various, the various racial issues in our country, whether it's economic or social. And we can see these things, and it can dishearten us. It can frustrate us. And it can make us question God. It can make us pose specific questions to God, like, is he impartial? Does he love some nations more than others. More importantly, we ask, how's he going to fix it? It seems like it's not great, not necessarily getting any better. We have this all-powerful, life-giving, light-bearing God. How's he going to fix this mess? 
And so the analogy to the Rubik's Cube is fitting not only because of its many colors showing the various diverse faces that God has made, the beautiful diversity that he has created on this earth. But if you've ever tried to solve a Rubik's Cube, you, one of the main frustrations is that it feels like once you solve one color, you kind of created a discrepancy in, a, in another. So it's a, it's a frustrating task. So how would God approach this problem? We'll see this in three headers. Heirs of God from the beginning. Second header, how God isn't solving this problem. And the third, the perfect image of an impartial God. Heirs of God from the beginning, how God isn't solving this problem and the perfect image of an impartial God. So one of the ways to answer the question of how God would solve the Rubik's Cube is to simply say, He solved it from the beginning. Similar to our racial and ethnic divisions, it's encouraging to see that God's solution for racial reconciliation is not a subplot. It's not something that has surprised him, but actually it's something that he has planned to resolve since the beginning of mankind. In pursuit of his glory, God has always focused on reconciling his people to himself and to Christ. Paul helps us to see this in the book of Galatians chapter 3. He not only links racial reconciliation to one of the most foundational promises of the Christian faith, the promise God made to Abraham to bless all nations, he, he makes this a gospel issue. We see this in verses 26 through 29, and it reads, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ." then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what is the result of our putting on Christ? What is the result of a fulfilled promise to Abraham? It is a removing of a distinction of race as a barrier and replacing it with unity in Christ. Are you a son of God? Were you baptized into Christ? Have you put on these Christ-like coverings? If so, then you are made a more perfect image of God, the way God made you to be. Now, this is not to say that our ethnicities are no longer important at all, but it is no longer primarily defining our a defining distinction for us. As he mentions, we are neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. But our greatest distinction is that we are heirs to the promise of Abraham. This is part of our new identity. 
The promise that God would, through Abraham, bless all the families of the world. Do you see yourself in this way? Is this the primary identity in which you hold fast to? You're not only a being of God's image, giving life and showing light to the world, but you are part of a family amongst all the families of the world in Christ. To reject this part of our identity or this outcome of God's promise is to reject the very inheritance that he has given you. He has ransomed us through Christ. So racial reconciliation is a gospel issue planned from the beginning. This is encouraging because if God has foreseen these issues and their resolution from the beginning, he is not frustrated by our problems and our limitations. He's not getting stuck, as we often do, with the problems of racial division. We've seen this play out in our country. We've seen this play out in our politics. Not only is he not perplexed or dismayed by this problem, He's showing us that he has the exact solution to help us remove this problem ourselves. Just as God called Abraham away from his country and land and kindred to become a nation that would ultimately bless all nations, he likewise calls us to see ourselves in a new body of Christ with his people. God is gently but persistently drawing us away from an old life into something new, something fresh, something that will remove us from the the earthly divisions that we can so easily be entangled by. More on this later, but for now, see that God's plan has always included resolving this issue from the beginning. I found in my own life that dealing with these issues, knowing that he has a plan for it, has protected me against my own self-righteousness. Particularly in 2020, as many of you experienced, these issues were in public discourse almost on a a daily basis. I found myself frustrated and hopeless and perplexed. But when I look to God, I see a God that loves his people, that cares for his people, who is not only infinitely wise, but infinitely loving. He cares more about these issues than I do. He cares more about his people than we do. And so when we are Sometimes tempted to be entangled by this, we should look to the Lord who has from the very beginning uh, created a plan, a purpose to resolve this. This should be an anchor in the way that we look at racial issues. God is doing this. He has a plan and he will fulfill it. What is our role? In this, well, part of it is to get out of God's way. Part of it is to not uh, pour gas on the fire. 
And so to the second heading, how, how God is not solving this issue. You may have noticed that the world is also trying to solve the issue of racial reconciliation. As Cody pointed out in the beginning, their first uh, attempt uh, was to come together against God, right? And what was the result? God created languages to confuse them and to scatter them. And in the very next chapter, he gave us the promise of Abraham. And it seems that the world, specifically in modern times, but also throughout history, when they gather together, it's typically against the plans of God and not for the plans of God or with the plans of God. We can learn lessons from the way they approach racial reconciliation, lessons of what not to do. First, If we're truly to put our hope in Christ and to follow him, we can't simply wish the problem away or hope for a quick fix. I actually have uh, solved the Rubik's Cube once, so if you're interested, make sure you take good notes on this section. So what I notice is that all of the uh, stickers on my Rubik's Cube could be removed. And so after several minutes of being frustrated, right, trying to actually solve the problem, I simply peeled all the stickers off and rearranged them. And at the end of it, I I actually had some satisfaction, even though I knew I had cheated. This is sometimes our inclination with dealing with hard issues, specifically racial reconciliation but others. We really just hope the problem will go away. It's too hard and demoralizing and frustrating to continue to fight it in our world and perhaps in our own hearts. But we see that God does not approach it in this way. The problem feels oftentimes feels so big that We want it to go away. And because it's not easily solved, we we can be tempted to ignore it in our own hearts. And if we do this, spiritually, we can put racial division in its own category and not treat it like other sins that we should be vigilant against. For example, if I were to ask you, Will you have to deal with the sin of lust throughout your Christian life? What would be your response? No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how, how much Bible you read, should you guard your, your heart against seductive images? Should you guard your mind against unclean thoughts? I believe we would collectively say, of course, that's not even a question. Even if I'm not struggling with this at the moment, I should be wary to avoid it. Similarly, the sin of greed, the love of money, which the Bible calls the root of all evil. 
If I were to ask you, should you guard your heart from the love of material possessions, the comfort that it can give us, the security that it could give us? Likewise, we likely say, of course, I should give sacrificially. I should plan to, you know, make sacrifices so that Money doesn't become so meaningful to me. I should store my treasures in heaven so that I love things in the heavenly realm more than the earthly realm. We could replace lust and greed with a whole host of sins, dishonesty, pride, selfishness, and I'm sure we would respond similarly. However, we are tempted to look at racial partiality, racial division in its own category. It's not comfortable for for us to think of ourselves as struggling with partiality of any kind, but specifically racial prejudice. It's the type of sin that we have set aside, sins that seem so wrong or unpleasant that we dare not even admit that we struggle with it. Racial division is not the only sin in this other category. Certain forms of sexual deviance like pedophilia, perhaps um, more recently same-sex attraction, occupy this space. Sins that if you look out into the world, you can see evidence of, but we are not likely to raise our hand and say, yes, this sin belongs to me. I need Christ's forgiveness. I need his salvation from it. To be clear, just because our souls have the capacity for these evils, it doesn't mean that everyone struggles with them equally or frequently. The point I'm making is the sin of racial division, like all sins, we should be guarding against. We've seen in Galatians a warning against this. And more importantly, we've seen that racial division is in opposition to God's plan. So instead of hoping that it goes away or looking for a quick fix, we are given instruction to combat it. One of the most helpful scriptures in this regard is 2 Corinthians, is in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul begins the chapter by making clear that our dwelling place is heavenly, not earthly. He established a preference to be with God and a focus on pleasing him. He lets us know that we have unity in Christ by his death for all. And this leads Paul to give us this instruction to combat racial division. 2 Corinthians 5 and 16 and 17. Listen. For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are not to regard each other based on fleshly distinctions, based on things that we can merely see. 
because we are new in Christ. We are called to be new images of God in Christ. We're even called to no longer regard the flesh of Christ himself. Viewing each other according to the flesh is part of the old creation. But God has made something new. Just because we should not regard one another according to the flesh does not mean that our earthly identities are completely ignored. God is not creating one homogenous identity where we all look and talk and worship the same. He's creating a family of all families of the world. God doesn't want to remove all cultural and ethnic distinctions, but he wants his character and image to be infused in all the peoples that he created. There's actually a Rubik's Cube where the goal is to get rid of all the colors. You actually start with a bunch of colors, and the goal is to to make it look void of color and dark. Thankfully, this is not what God is doing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has put us in specific cultures. He has put us in specific ethnicities to show his diversity to make use of his creation. And so while we don't regard each other according to the flesh, our identities that God has given us is important. Paul continues. He calls us to not only be a part of this new creation, but to be an ambassador to this new life. This is our role in helping solve racial division. We don't look for quick fixes or ignore the problem altogether, but we become ambassadors to a reconciliation to God and his family. This should guide our responses to how the world wrongly has tried to solve this problem. As we have seen in recent years, particularly in response to the death of George Floyd, the world is offering its solution to racial division. We've seen solutions proposed of all types, political, economic, cultural. Question that could come up in our hearts is, what should the church's response be to this? How should we respond to the world trying to solve this problem? Should we be antagonistic towards it? Should we fight misguided, counterproductive solutions? We've seen some of this approach in the anti-critical race theory movement. At the opposite end, we've seen what could be labeled as cooperation or assimilation. Perhaps we should cooperate. The logic there being, well, if the world wants peace, The world wants racial harmony. Why shouldn't the church join in? What this scripture points out is a third way, a biblical way. Not one that is primarily trying to build up or tear down what the world is doing. But by being an ambassador to the ultimate solution of God, we help reconcile people not only to God, but to each other. This is the very result of the new creation. 
As 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 states, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. Christ is reconciling himself to the world. He is not counting our trespasses when we are in him. And he is calling us to be ambassadors to this reconciliation. I've used this illustration in the past, and it's one of a Christian football team. If you would see all of Christendom as a football team, we might be tempted to see non-believers as the ones that we are pitted against. And so temptation is to, to defeat the other team, right? Score more touchdowns. Hit them hard, right? Or we look at the opposing team and we get fearful. We say, well, they might have better players or they have better equipment. Neither of those two ways is what the scripture points us to. If we follow God's instruction to be ambassadors, it will be like a football team whose primary strategy to win the game is to literally recruit the other players. To show them that actually God owns both teams. God is, has created us all. But the side that you're on, they're actually trying to fool you. To be ambassadors is to persuade people, to labor with people, to love people, to know the true God. How badly does our country and our world need us to be this light? To get over the guilt and shame that racial division has caused. When we operate in this way, we follow God's command to do the things as true image bearers of God. We not only become life-giving and light-shining agents of the gospel, but we show a central characteristic of who God is. And that is God is impartial. He gives himself freely to all people, to all nations. Which brings us to our final heading, the perfect image of an impartial God. So we've seen that racial reconciliation is a gospel issue with that foundation in the very promises of God to Abraham. We've also seen that God is calling us to be ambassadors to this new creation where we no longer regard each other according to the flesh but we are one in Christ and part of the family of God. What this tells us about God is that he is not partial to any person, any nation, any group. God has always proclaimed to be of God for all people. The God that reveals himself in the Bible is not a tribal God or a regional God. He has revealed himself to be a God for all, not showing his favor only to one nation or one people or ethnicity or race. Now, many of you may be thinking, I've read the Old Testament and it 
kind of sounds like God has a favorite, right? Israel, he looks over them, he, he chooses them, he saves them from famine, he frees them from slavery, he's their commander in battle, he's patient when they sin against him. And there's no denying that at first glance, it appears that God has focused his interests on one particular people. It appears that God is partial. But I can tell you that that is not God's intent. There are so many examples in the Old Testament that show us God has always intended to show his love through Israel for all people. Quickly, we'll name a few. Example from the story of Jonah. If you recall, God tells Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. Jonah is reluctant. He deals with the consequences of God's wrath. And at the very end, he agrees to do it, but he is still unhappy. And at the end of that book, God is still pleading with Jonah to say, look at the people of Ninia. They don't know their right hand from their left. He's showing us that, yes, Israel is my people, but there are other people that I love. There are other people I want to save. The example of Isaiah, Isaiah 49 in six, Isaiah clearly shows us that saving Israel only is too light a thing for God to do. God wants his light to go out to all nations so that his salvation reaches the end of the earth. Quick plug on perspectives. Because one of the most transformational, insightful um, parts of perspective is as you go through the biblical history of missions, you see God's consistent heart for all people. The historical portion of perspectives is great as well, the cultural. But once you see this in the Bible, you cannot unsee it. God has never played favorites. Final example I want to give you is that of the building of the very first temple in Jerusalem. God, had, God desired to dwell with his people. He's shown this over and again, whether it was through a cloud uh, in, the, in the wilderness. He uh, eventually instructs Moses to build an ark uh, of a covenant so that he could come down and be with his people. And later... King David has a plan to actually build a physical temple for God. It was ultimately left to his son, King Solomon, to build it. And in 2 Chronicles 2 and 6, upon the completion of this temple, he's dedicating the temple to the Lord, and Solomon begins to pray. He asks God to hear the prayers that have for those who have transgressed the law. He asks that God hear the prayers of Israel, 
when they are defeated in battle or suffer famine. Of all the prayers that Solomon lists, one stands out as it relates to showing God's heart to be impartial. In 2 Chronicles 6 and 32, he says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name in your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Israel does have a special relationship with God, but it was never intended to be limited just to Israel. But it was, be, it was supposed to be, it is, an example for how God cares for all of his people. Just as he chose Israel as a people, he is and will gather a people of every nation. Just as he has saved Israel from famine and slavery, he has looked after and delivered us. Just as he is patient with them, forgiving their sins, redeeming them, he has raised up Christ to be the redeemer of the world. So in closing and before we take communion, know that this is God's heart to be glorified in all people because he himself is not partial to anyone. To be partial to a specific nation or people or group would be to limit his own glory. When we look ahead to the end of time, we see the exact opposite. We see every tribe, every tongue, every nation surrounding the throne of God worship him. So go out into the world, bearing God's image, being ambassadors to his new creation, and inviting people of every nation to join God's family of all the families in the world. Let's pray together.